Hannah's Diary, November 19th, 1940. It feels so cold and uninviting and damp when the rain soaks through the walls all the way to my bed. But on Saturday, when I wash the doorstep, mop the floor, and tidy everything up, I think that not even a king has such a beautiful bedroom. Next to the window on the left is my bed and trunk. The table has one compartment with books, newspapers, my journal, and a comb. Then a suitcase covered with an old blanket on which I sit no matter what I am doing. Next to the trunk is a little table with a framed family photograph and a chair, then a cupboard on which there's a sewing kit, ointments, a flashlight, and various knickknacks. On the wall hangs my Megen David, the Star of David. This is my room, my world, where I rule, the world I trust and confide in. The window? That's the most beautiful part. Leaning out of it or sitting on the floor, watching the stars? I can't see the moon, but the stars, those I can see. Is it true that people's destiny is written in the stars? What do they say about me? I don't know, but I'm not afraid. Even if it's no good, I have to face it. Sometimes I don't think this way and there are no stars outside. Then I turn back to the light of my room, my cozy room that contains me and comforts me. I know that you won't disclose anything about me, my dear world, my impossible desires, my hot tears, my strange thoughts, my writings and letters torn into pieces. I know I can trust you. I can be safe with you. This is why I sometimes all too happily put myself in bed and know that you won't allow anything bad to happen to me. I'm Rachel Cerati. We share the same sky. I've heard the story a lot of times. In every family, there's one person who holds tight to the family history. And in this family, it's Knud Arne. My name is Knud Arne Nygaard. I am 66 years old. My father's name was Arne, and my mother's name was Jensine. Knud Arne grew up on a farm in Denmark, and as a kid, he latched onto a story he heard from his mother, a story about a Jewish girl from Czechoslovakia who lived on their farm years before, before he was even born. It was back when Jensine had just given birth to her first child. My mother was only 21, so that's very young. Jensine and this girl became close, and a family story was born. The girl's short-lived presence on their farm and the unknowns that surrounded her departure were passed down from parent to child to grandchild. It's been with me uh, all the time. When you have, as a kid, have that kind of story several times, it grows in you and uh, becomes an important part of the stories you get when you grow up. 
often when we talked about her younger days, she she brought the story up, and every time she had to wonder wonder what happened to her, wonder what where in the world are she is she now, and is she still alive? How did she manage? She wondered a lot about that. The story ended with a question mark, until Knud Arne read an article in his local newspaper. Six, seven, eight years ago. The journalist had written about a young group of Jews who had been in Denmark during the war. And uh, I thought, oh, this uh, Hannah story could be related to that one. So Knud Arne looked up the journalist. I got her mail, wrote her and said, could there be a Hannah Dupua amongst these kids you are writing about? She wrote back and uh, yes, she was. Unfortunately, she, she died a couple of years ago, but there was a daughter in the Boston area. And that's how I connected with Yancine's family. I wish I could say I found them myself. But the truth is that it was Knudarne's curiosity that brought him to me. Knudarne emailed my mom. They began writing each other. I remember just for months my adrenaline was running, you know, and I didn't need as much sleep as I normally do, you know, it was just every day, what's the email going to bring? What's the next mystery? What's the next secret I'm gonna find out? This is my mom, Janet, Hannah's daughter. My mom and I have spent a lot of time talking about Hannah's story. I remember the first time she and I went back to the Czech Republic, to the town where Hannah was born. Journalists were interviewing us, asking us what it felt like to return. Our answers were so different. I didn't carry the pain she did. I remember feeling scared she would judge me, for feeling more fascination than loss. You were a little younger then, but you thought I was upset. And I'm like, no, I don't want you to feel what I feel. It's good to have some of the knowledge, but I don't want you to feel all those feelings. My mother grew up without extended family and the trauma of why that was. I grew up surrounded by cousins, aunts, and uncles. What a difference a generation makes. My parents flew to Denmark to meet Yancine even before I did. Yancine was 93 now, with five children and 14 grandchildren. Knud Arne picked them up and drove them to his home. Yancine was inside. I walked through the door. It was kind of like walking through a threshold of incredible love and gratitude. I was walking to meet somebody who had been part of my mother's life and part of the reason that I was still living. Mostly I wanted to tell Yancine thank you. I also feel that because I didn't have a lot of family, uh, sometimes people who have been with your family in that way feel like family in a way that I actually never had or never knew. Meeting Janet was a very big thing for my mother. My mother could see a lot of Hannah in Janet, just uh, as uh, it was Hannah herself. They kissed each other and hugged and, yeah. She was very moved by it. I could see she was really, really moved. I think that many of us live with a certain loneliness and loss. You couldn't walk around every day being in touch with all of your feelings. 
But I think there are times when you get in touch with the depths of your own soul. And maybe there's an emptiness there that you didn't even realize, and all of a sudden it's being filled. That's Hannah. Yeah. Yeah. When I met Yancine and her children, they showed me their family photo albums. I found pictures of my grandmother inside. Knud Arne also gave me letters Hannah had sent to Yancine just after the war ended. Yancine had saved them for the nearly 70 years since. Knud Arne translated them for me and answered any questions I had. The, the four-legged Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> My parents had a, a horse, uh, a white horse, uh, I think it was, and uh, it had lost uh, sight on one eye, so uh, they called it Hitler. I love the dark humor here. You know, uh, in countryside, they dig their own wells for drinking water, and um, this wasn't covered well enough, probably. So Hitler fell into a well. The horse fell in with the, his back legs, and um, they couldn't get him up. They had to call for help. It was a whole big thing. The uh, authorities came with a crane and uh, pulled uh, Hitler up the well. This is a hilarious story. <laughs> <laughs> it was an exciting moment in uh, a normal day life, you know. At last, uh, something happened out of the normal thing. From my perspective, as Hannah's granddaughter, nothing about this feels normal. Hannah's a refugee escaping the Nazis in a foreign country. She's 16. She should be in school. She should be with her family. Her letters shouldn't be censored. Sentences shouldn't be blacked out. Envelopes shouldn't be stamped with a swastika. But I guess you can get used to anything because all of this did become normal, even when her parents' letters came less and less, even when they stopped coming at all. Hannah lived with Yancine for about a year. Then she moved on to work for other families. She remained safe in Denmark. It had become a point of pride in Danish society to not discriminate against any neighbor. And that conviction became even stronger under the Nazi occupation. It didn't matter whether you were a Danish Jew or a Jewish refugee living in Denmark. Everyone was protected. That is, until September 29th, 1943. One night, around October 43, she called my mother and said, uh, this is Hannah, can I come? And my mother said, of course, you just come. And she came. The last thing she said uh, before they went to bed was that I might not be here in the morning when you wake up. And she wasn't. She was gone. September 29th. Again, that date would change Hannah's life. And we'll get there. When I started traveling, I reached out to Knidarne. I wanted to come to Denmark and live on a farm like Hannah did, and I wondered if any of his relatives would host me. You know, 
finding a farm like beginning of the 40s uh, won't happen. But then I, I think I talked to my eldest brother. His wife said, what about Sine? Um, my name is Sine and I live here in Denmark on a farm. And I'm, <laughs> I'm a granddaughter of Jensine. Sine is Knud Arne's niece, one of Jensine's 14 grandchildren. And of course, I am named Sine after Jensine. My uncles, they called me and said, oh, Sine, we have this American uh, photographer and she want to she wanna see how life is when Hannah was in Denmark. So it's much better that she stay with you. And I just, okay, it's no problem. <laughs> Maybe I can get some help. And that's exactly what I wanted to do. I told Sine I'd help with the animals and do whatever I could around the house, just like Hannah had done. And in exchange, I wanted to photograph my time with her family. It was the closest I'd be able to get to documenting my grandmother's life. So, in February of 2015, I moved in with Sine. I moved in with the granddaughter of my grandmother's foster mother from World War II. Sine had just turned 40 when we met. She's married to a man named Torsten. They got together when they were like 18. Now they have three kids. Part of the deal was that I would help Sine in the barn each morning. Okay, so I will open the door and the horse will run in. And Sally will come this yeah. way. Okay, okay. Come, sir. Yeah. You were really a city girl but really trying hard with your big, big camera. <laughs> Hanging here all the time. But uh, you scoop poop from the horses and what do you call it when you uh, clean the floor? And, uh, all with my camera on my neck. <laughs> yes, always with the camera and try to take the horse. Oh, <laughs> a big thing, yeah. I saw the farm through my camera lens. I photograph Sine at work. I take pictures of the kids and show them. We'd laugh and smile. That's how we talk since we didn't speak the same language. The kids were young then. Miva, the eldest, was 11. Lauge, the only boy, was nine. And Celia was four. She was known as the queen of the household. I hung out with them a lot. Sometimes we cook dinner together. Sometimes we visit the animals. Sometimes we'd watch TV or jump on the trampoline. On a few occasions, I went with them to school. I taught in their classes and photographed their school dance. Knidarne had warned me before I went to the farm that it was really in the middle of nowhere. But every night, I was sitting with the family for dinner. I'd never been so calm. I arrived at Sine's farm as a professional observer, with all my camera gear and my grandmother's diaries. But a mutual exchange took place very quickly. It wasn't so much photographer and subject. It was us two granddaughters trying to become a little bit closer to our family histories by becoming closer to each other. She witnessed my life unfold. We talked about everything. 
In the beginning, it was, you know, uh, simple things, but also how to save the planet. <laughs> save the planet and politics. And I think all your thoughts about getting married, we talked about that a lot because you were just got engaged. Sergio and I were still long distance. Hey, babe. Love you. We'd send video messages back and forth. Sit down. Sit. Stay. Let me show you my room. Stay. I'd see him between my work trips. It's pretty fancy, Stay. gotta say. Okay! <laughs> Wish you were here with me. This, this monster is attacking me. Say hi, Sergio. I miss you. By the time I followed Hannah's story to Denmark, he was filing paperwork to immigrate to the United States. He'd moved to Boston with me when I finished traveling. And you thought, can I live with that person together in the same apartment and married and married forever? And uh, oh, everything was so new to you. It's true. I was nervous, excited and nervous, concerned and confident. Life is full of these emotional contradictions. I tagged along with Sine wherever she went. The first place off the farm she took me to was a slaughterhouse. I've always given her a hard time for this. I am a horrible, horrible person. <laughs> you are vegetarian, and then I took you to the slaughterhouse. And we knew each other for like four days. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this, this, this is going to be fine. This is going to be a great relationship. Maybe this sounds morbid, but you could say we bonded over death. Death is unavoidable on a farm. I still uh, cry sometimes when I load the sheep and look at them and mm, oh, you're looking so beautiful and you're young and fresh, but you're all boys, so I can't have you. I always say if I get too used to um, death on a farm, I was not supposed to be a farmer anymore. I witnessed a lot of death on the farm. Kittens caught in the spokes of wheels, sheep dying from the flu, chickens and ducks eaten by foxes, bulls and pigs sent to slaughter. And our grandmothers? In a way, it was their deaths that had brought Sine and me together. We also talked so many times about this connection that um, it's strange because we are not related or anything. It's not blood, but it's another connection, which is very important. You know, Jensine was taking care of Hannah. It's always that Hannah learned a lot about of Jensine because she learned about farming life. But I think a lot the other way also. I think they learned a lot about life from each other. Before I left Europe, I brought Sergio to the farm in Denmark. I wanted him to meet Sine's family. We loved him right away, and he actually knew a lot about farming. He knew a lot about vegetables. Vegetables? Oh, now I don't want to say the word. Vegetables. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> when he came to visit, he could hardly contain himself. He'd been researching sustainable agriculture and biodynamic this and that. It made him want to become a farmer. And when we moved to Boston, he got a job on a local farm. 
Every day he came home in cargo pants with fingernails caked with dirt. You know, not to sound too like cliche, but like you and Torsten changed their doing my life. He became a farmer because of you guys. Mm. He was supposed to be a diplomat. <laughs> His parents weren't thrilled. And they were like, wait, you got your master's degree and like you're planning on diplomacy. You're going to be a farmer? <laughs> you're going to move to America and be a farmer? We we're like, well, see me and Torsten do it. <laughs> We decided that when we'd host a wedding celebration, about a year after we were officially married, the party would be in Denmark, on Sine and Horsten's farm. It was uh, life, because you were so many young people. We talked about that because we felt a little old. (laughs) Sitting in the garden with all you young. And it was such a nice time just to watch you and your friends from all over the world together in our garden. It was perfect. It makes me a little emotional because it's uh, it puts the whole history in another perspective. When we came out, you said, oh, I think our grandmothers are smiling down on us. Yes, of course, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure they did. As children, our parents read us stories with happy endings. The famous Danish author Hans Christian Andersen is known for writing some of the most iconic of our childhood stories. The Little Mermaid, The Ugly Duckling, The Emperor's New Clothes. The childhood versions are hopeful. The adult versions, the originals, those often are dark at the end. In his lesser-known story, The Thorny Path, Hans Christian Andersen writes, The fairy tale and reality are not far apart, but the fairy tale is in harmony, earthly and time-bound. Reality is harmony, too, but it can only be found in the boundless time of eternity. My reality takes us to September 29th, 2016. Just one month after the wedding celebration in Denmark, Sergio and I were back in Boston now. It was a normal morning. I was about to take the kids to school and there was this number, long distant call I could see, but I couldn't see it was Rachel. So I took the phone and I just said, I couldn't hear you. So I I think you were crying and you said something and I just ah, I can't hear you I can't hear you what are you saying and then you felt out and then you called again and you said it's Rachel and I oh it's you Rachel and ah and I could hear in your voice that something happened you said uh, Sergio 
was dead and nobody knew why. I've been sitting in our apartment, editing photos of the farm, listening to a podcast. I don't remember which one. I heard a thump, like a chair that fell over. I called Sergio's name. He didn't answer. I pushed out my chair. I stepped over the wires and hard drives and I called his name again. No answer. I walked across the hall to the bedroom. The door was already open. He was on the floor. His glasses were on the floor next to him. They were broken. I thought he was breathing. I called his name again. I touched his body. It was warm. I tried CPR. I yelled at him. I told him to wake up. I called 911. They came. They put him in an ambulance. I tried to get in the back with him. They wouldn't let me. They put me in the front next to the driver. I don't know why I pulled out my phone. It was like autopilot. To disassociate, to protect myself. I did what my grandmother's story trained me to do. I pressed record. Why, why is it? What's that? I always see an ambulance with the siren going. Listen, relax. I'm driving, I'm in control of the vehicle. If I drive too fast, they can't look in the back of the ambulance. Okay, I, just, I understand, doing. I understand. I know, I know you're upset. I, no, I, I, you I know, know, he was breathing when I gave him CPR. He could feel me. Okay, was he, was he, was he gasping? Yes. Okay, that, okay. Sergio was pronounced dead at 7.34 p.m., September 29, 2016. He died from an undiagnosed heart disease. I remember sitting there in the hospital. I held his hand. It got colder and colder. I asked the nurse to take off his wedding ring for me because I was too scared to hurt his body. I have no idea if I cried. It sounds so messed up to say this, but for some reason, while I sat there, my brain kept going to my grandmother. It felt so incredibly inappropriate. But we don't get to decide where our thoughts go. All I could do was think about Hannah. I had spent so many years telling people that her story was uplifting because she survived, because people like Yancine saved her. My grandmother's Holocaust story was different than other survivors. She never witnessed death. And all I could do is think about what a fraud I was. How could I have thought I could be the narrator of a story I knew nothing about? Denmark was the only place that made sense to me after Sergio died. There was so much life on the farm, even in the winter. The animals, the children, the short days and the long nights. So I went back. I was afraid what was going to happen to you. Everybody was, of course. And I thought, you, can, you can't stay here because of all the memories. 
but that's where I wanted to be. I returned to my apartment on Sine's farm, the place where I'd celebrated my wedding just a few months before. I lay on the couch, wrapped in blankets, snuggled up with my grandmother's diaries. Each of her words read differently now, and the stories that Sine and Knud Arne and the rest of their family told me felt different now. History had changed. I tried to ask my mother how did Hannah react when Hannah got a letter from Prague, Czechoslovakia, that that her father and mother and brother was uh, gassed in uh, the concentration camp. And uh, Hannah was uh, going to her room and, uh, you know, kept it for herself mainly. I don't think it wasn't because that my mother wouldn't talk to her about it, or but I think Hannah kept it inside and tried to deal with it on her own. My mother, she was saying, you, you know, you don't know what's going on inside a girl like that. I'll never know what went on inside of her either. I've stopped trying to understand, but I know that her words help me. If nothing else, what happened in the past has given me tools for the present. I don't care if that sounds cliche. When my grandmother was 80 years old, she took a writing class called Memories and Memoirs. It is beautiful to read her reflections, hauntingly so. To witness her scribe her history at an old age when I have so many of the same stories written in real time during World War II, is nothing short of hopeful. There are so many pieces of writing that I claim to love the most, but I remember one sticking out to me more than others in my early days of grief. It was titled Vulnerability, and it goes like this. It is wise and best not to think about our vulnerability too much. It could lead to despair. It is far better to think about our strengths. Pretend we are wearing a soft tailor-made suit of armor. Nothing can pierce it as we go forth like one of King Arthur's knights. It's hard to do that. You have to put up a good front, a stiff upper lip. If our armor is made right, we can bend a little, stoop down to pet a dog or pick a flower. It's hard to cook in it or do housework, but it is best to keep it on at all times, especially at special occasions like Christmas and birthdays, so you don't start thinking sad thoughts of the past. And it's good to have it on at wakes and funerals and other sad times. Because you know, every living person on the planet, and all animals too, are so very vulnerable to just about every horrible, awful, scary, terrifying, wonderful, loving, happy, pleasurable thing on Mother Earth, and that there's very little you can do to dodge it, except plow right through and hope to avoid the bad and enjoy the good. Hannah Dubova, 2004. Rachel, 
the birds are singing. It's 4 a.m. in the morning. I just wanted to say hi. This is my neighborhood. It's so pretty over here. I want you over here. I love you. I love you more than anything. <laughs>